Our Father, thank you for the opportunities you give us to, um, to be a body of believers involved in small groups, opportunities to, to see our kids um, further discipled uh, through the ministries of the church, um, to, to be a part of each other's lives around the Word of God. I pray, Father, now as we corporately gather like this that your Spirit will enlighten us and teach us and, and direct us, Father. We, we, we need that help. And so I ask you this for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to take a break from the book of Isaiah next week. In fact, for five weeks, we are going to have a break from the book of Isaiah. John Morrison, our pastor of family uh, counseling, of, of counseling ministries here, biblical counseling, is going to be in the pulpit for the next two weeks, sharing a, a very important and a very difficult topic. It's very culturally relevant. We hear it in the news all the time, every day, on the fallout of a sin that is gripping our country and probably has gripped our world and mankind since the very beginning of time. I'm not going to tell you any more about that other than just pray for John as over the next two weeks. Um, and, and if at all possible, do not miss uh, what's coming up. But this morning, I want us to begin by looking at a verse in 2 Peter chapter 3, where Peter writes, know this, first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come or scoffers will scum with their scoffing, following after their own lusts. And they will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the father slept, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Jude writes this in verse 17 and 18, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, like Peter that we just read. And they were saying to us, in the last times there will be mockers or scoffers following after their own ungodly lusts. These are passages in the New Testament that warn us about what will be prevalent in the last days as people will turn their back on God and follow their own lust, their own selfish indulgences, their own self-made ways while they scoff at God. Of course, this isn't just characteristic of the last days. From the very beginning of time, scoffers have existed. Cain killed his brother Abel. Cain was told by God in judgment, you are going to be a wanderer, a vagrant over the earth. And Cain scoffed at God. Chapter 4 of the Bible, fourth chapter in the Bible. He scoffed at God, me, a wanderer, a vagrant? And he ends up building a city. He ends up with defiant fist raised before God, I will not be a wanderer, and he built a city. Or Genesis chapter 11, after the flood, God told Noah and his family that they were to go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, similar to what God had told Adam and Eve. Go, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. 
And yet the people went out, it says in chapter 11, to a plain called Shinar. And there they built a city and then a tower that reached up to heaven. In defiance against God, they scoffed at God and his word. We'll do what we want to do. We'll have it our way. The very first psalm in the Psalter, you know it, Psalm chapter 1, how blessed is a man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of the sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. He meditates on that day and night. Scoffers. They've existed from the very beginning of human history, and as we come to the end of the age, they will be in full force, Peter tells us in Jude. A scoffer is someone who, very simply, despises God's truth and ridicules and scorns and hates anyone who upholds God's truth. He's turned his back on God's truth. He scorns it. He ridicules it. He despises it. Now, the ancient prophet Isaiah had his share of scoffers that he had to deal with. And I invite you this morning to turn with me to Isaiah chapter 28. Isaiah 28 begins kind of a new section of Isaiah, 28 through 33. And as I've already explained, we're going to kind of depart from that for a number of weeks. We'll get back to it later in September. But Isaiah chapter 28, and I want you to notice as you look at the first verse of Isaiah 28, it begins with the word woe. If you have an English standard version, it, I think it begins with ah, but it's the idea of woe. And the succeeding chapters afterwards also begin with that word woe. But notice that the last verse of chapter 28, verse 29, ends with the word wisdom or counsel or guidance. Isaiah chapter 28 is focusing on two paths that we can follow, the path of woe or the path of wisdom. It's focusing on, on, on two uh, ways of, of living life, two destinies that would follow, woe or wisdom. Let's read the first four verses here of chapter 28. I'm reading here from the New American Standard Version. Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, of those who are overcome with wine. Behold, verse 2, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent, a, a, a storm of hail, a tempest of, of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters. He has cast it down to the earth with his hand, the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot. The fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees. And as soon as it is in his hand, he swallows it. Now, these words by Isaiah, I don't know exactly the time frame. Remember, Isaiah prophesied over a 60-year period of time. But apparently he's focusing on Ephraim. That would be another name for Israel to the north. The ten tribes that had their capital city at Samaria, that 
capital city, Samaria, is referred to as this, this fading flower of its glorious beauty. Ephraim, or Israel to the north, was overrun by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. And Isaiah is warning them. Actually, he's bringing about this condemnation. Woe to you, proud, drunken Ephraimites. They've turned their back on God. They've said no to him. They're scoffers. And their capital city of Samaria, identified as that fading flower of glorious beauty. Samaria sat on a hill overlooking these beautiful fertile valleys in that region. But you get the hint of where Isaiah is going when it says it's a fading flower because he says the Lord, verse 2, is going to bring a strong and mighty agent. That's the Assyrian army that's coming. It's a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, a mighty overflowing waters that he's cast down upon earth with his hand. The Assyrians are coming. Ephraim will be overrun. The beauty and the glorious capital of Samaria will be trodden underfoot. And like, like an early ripened fig, I don't know what that would necessarily relate to today in that area, Figs would uh, come into, uh, uh, be ready to be picked, say, late July into August, September. And he's talking about an early ripened fig. A person is walking down the roadway. There's a fig tree. And there's, a, there's an early ripened fig. And they, they're so sweet. They're so I I enjoyable. A person runs and grabs it, pops it in his mouth. And God is saying, that's what's going to happen to Samaria. The Assyrians are going to come and see like, a, like an early ripened fig, and they're going to grab it, pluck it, and destroy it. Now, with judgment, as we see so oftentimes in Isaiah, there's also these, these quick little words of hope, like verse 5 and 6. He says, in that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown. These drunken um, Ephraimites, they, they live there, um, he calls them in verse 1, woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of the Ephraimites, the, the, the high and mighty, the, the leaders of Israel. They're like the, the crown of the people. Well, they're nothing but vile drunkards. But one day, verse 5, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people, a spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment and strength to those who repel the onslaught of the gate. Just a little bit of hope, just a, a, a little um, moment of reprieve from his statement of judgment, his word of judgment. There is hope. And like oftentimes as Isaiah wrote, he spoke of times that took place in his day and he spoke of times that were yet to come. Hope one day for Israel. Look at verse 7. As he focuses on the leaders, and these also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink, the priest and the prophet. They reel with strong drink. 
They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter while rendering judgments. As the leaders go, so go the people. Their teaching, their pronouncements are, are vile. Verse, 20, or verse 80 says, the tables are full of filthy vomit without a clean place, a single clean place. I, I realize, I mean, this is graphic. He's got these people pictured as their hedonistic lifestyle, their self-indulgence, not just physically, but morally and, and certainly spiritually. They're occupied with themselves, the self-centeredness and self-focus. And when they speak, it's like vomiting on the tables because of their drunken, vile ways. And they leave that putrid filth for the people. Very graphic. This is spiritual pride. This is spiritual vileness. This was God's people and the leaders of the people. And in verse 9, it says, To whom would he teach knowledge? To whom would he interpret the message? From those just weaned from milk? From those taken from the breast? Now the question, it's an interpreted question, and it's a difficult one. It's who is he talking to here? And there's a couple different views. I accept the view, and I, it makes sense to me that um, these people speaking are the drunken prophets and priests. And the he that is referred to is Isaiah himself. He's just talked about the, the putrid vomiting of the priests, of the prophets, of their visions, of their vile uh, teaching. And then in verse 9, they turn and they see Isaiah there. To whom would he teach knowledge? To whom would he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? Just little, little infants? Little babies? Isaiah's message isn't sophisticated. Isaiah's message isn't worth believing. He's just, he's just talking to, to little babies, little baby talk. That's all you'll get from Isaiah. And verse 10 is quite interesting, I think, where it says, for he says, order on order, order on order, a little here, you know, a little there, line upon line, line upon line. Now, in the Hebrew language, this is how it sounds, and I think this is what they're mocking Isaiah. What, what does he have to offer? Just little babies, little infant, little baby talk. And the Hebrew reads, Tzav the Tzav, Kav the Kav, Tzir Sham, Tzir Sham. Tzav the Tzav, Kav the Kav, Tzir Sham, Tzir Sham, blah, 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 baby talk, blah, 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 blah. They're mocking. They're scoffers. They're mocking Isaiah. And that's the intent of the text. Isaiah is nothing more than a babbling child who appeals to little infants. Don't listen to him. Why, he has nothing to offer the sophisticated. 
Well, in verse 11 begins with the word that is a, it, it, it's to indicate a marked change. Indeed, or the NIV says, very well then. And now, I think the subject is God. He will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. The one who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary. Here is repose, but they would not listen. And so, verse 12, 13, the word of the Lord to them will be, tzav le tzav, kav le kav, zeret sham, zeret sham. Blah, 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 blah. But it won't be baby talk. It'll be from the lips of a foreign people. The Assyrians are coming in judgment. And they will march into your city, Samaria, the fading glory, the glorious, the fading flower, the glorious beauty that sits at the head of the valley. They will march in in judgment and they will destroy you as they blah, 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 speak in foreign tongues and overrun your country. The irony. Verse 12, God was the one who was said, here is rest. Give rest to the weary. Here is refreshment. Here is repose. And they wouldn't listen. And so judgment was coming. By the way, I'm not going to develop this. I just want to draw your attention. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 20, quotes this verse from Isaiah 28. And he does it within the context of explaining to the early church the gift of speaking in tongues. So you can look it up and read it. He just says, he gives a, a, a reason for why tongues, the gift of tongues, was given to the church. And he very clearly says tongues are for a sign, not to believers, but to unbelievers, unbelieving Jews, that God was shifting his program from the Jews to a people of another language, Gentiles, the church of Jesus Christ. Anyway... We'll take the time to develop that. So in these first 13 verses, Isaiah is exposing this sinful, selfish, self-indulged mindset, this hedonistic, self-focused um, wickedness of Israel and of the false leaders. They are scoffers. They despise God and His Word. They care only for their own hedonistic pleasures. They're drunk with their own self-importance and their sinful desires. And they're on the path of woe. And doom and destruction was coming. Reminds me what Proverbs 14.10 says, there's a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that way is death. Not only were these people self-focused, they were self-deluded, self-deceived. Remember what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 6? The wages of sin is death. The path of woe. Now, starting in verse 14, 
I think God now shifts and he sees the southern kingdom, the capital is Jerusalem, and he's warning them, look at what has happened to Ephraim, to Israel to the north. 722 B.C., they're destroyed just as God had warned. Now verse 14, therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people in Jerusalem. It's scoffers to the north in Samaria. It's scoffers to the south in Jerusalem. Verse 15, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by. We have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Now, the people weren't saying that. You know, they weren't saying we made a pact with death. This is Isaiah's interp interpretation. He's saying, in essence, this is what you're saying, the leaders of Jerusalem. Now, historically, and we'll see this in the weeks to come when we keep going and study of this, what uh, the rulers of Jerusalem were doing as they saw what was happening, the Assyrians, this vast army from the north was coming against them, they looked to the south and there were the Egyptians. And so they tried to make an alliance with the Egyptians, says, hey, come on our side, well, let's work together, let's gang up on the Assyrians. They were trying to make a foreign alliance. And Isaiah is saying, you're making a pact with death. With Sheol, a covenant with Sheol. You're saying, oh, the, the overwhelming scourge will pass us by. We've made, a, we've, made a, uh, we've made falsehood our refuge. We've concealed ourselves with deception. Isaiah is saying, that's what you're saying. In essence, you are saying you've made a pact with death, with Sheol. What you're saying is you're deceived. You're living out of false premises, of falsehoods. He's calling them out. He's calling them out. And because of that, judgment's coming. Look at verse 17. I will make justice the measuring line, righteousness the level. I'm going I'm to drop a pum line. I'm going I'm to lay that level on top of you, and we'll see where that bubble goes. And you're going to come out crooked. And therefore, last part of verse 17, hail shall sweep away the refuge away the, uh, the refuge of lies, and the waters shall overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death shall be canceled, and your pact with shields shall not stand when the overwhelming scourge passes not by, but through, and then you become its trampling place. Verse 19, as often as it passes through, it will seize you for morning after morning, it will pass through, and any time during the day or night, and it will be sheer terror to understand what it means. And then in verse 20, he gives this very interesting imagery. The bed is too short on which to stretch out. The blanket is too small to wrap oneself up. You know what Isaiah is saying in modern language? He said, you have short-sheeted yourself, O Jerusalem. You think you're so clever. You're going to make a pact with Egypt. Well, I'm telling you, it's like, it's like a a seven-foot man sleeping in a four-foot bed. It doesn't fit. Or covering himself up with a blanket that, that's too small. Your attempt at solving your problems by yourself is woefully lacking. That's what he's saying in verse 20. 
Verse 21, for the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the Valley of Gibeon. And those were two historical times in the life of Israel where God rose up in defense of his people in miraculous ways. Every Jew would have known what Mount Perizim and, and Gibeon, what, what those things were about, the victories of God. Well, now Isaiah is saying God is going to rise up again, like in Perizim, like in Gibeon, but he's going to rise up against you to do his task, his unusual, his strange work, to work his work, his extraordinary work, where he will turn his back on his people and bring judgment because they have turned their back on him. Isaiah's exhortation, verse 22, and now do not carry on as scoffers or your fetters will be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God Almighty, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of armies, of decisive destruction on all the earth. Once again, Isaiah speaks not only of events of his day, but it's prophetic of a day yet to come. But Isaiah is telling his people, I've seen it. God has revealed it to me. You must repent. Verse 23, four commands, rapid fire succession. Verse 23, give ear, hear my voice, listen, hear my words, pay attention, listen to my speech. Four rapid fire imperatives. Give ear, listen, hear. Hear my words. The sin of the scoffers was their arrogant insistence that they didn't need to listen to God, that they didn't need God. It was their refusal to listen to his prophets, to his word. They had turned their back on God. They chose the path of woe. And whenever we decide we don't need God or choose our own way, it puts us on the path of woe. And so he says in verse 24, does the farmer plow, another really kind of interesting imagery here, does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn the harrow and harrow the ground? How many farmers do we have? How many of you were raised on a farm and farmed? Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. So was I. And, and, and the imagery here is that there is an innate sense of common sense. A farmer doesn't continually plant. There are seasons. You do it at the right time. He doesn't continually turn the ground over. There, there's a season. There's a time. There's an innate sense of, of, of knowing what is right. Verse 25, does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat in rows and barley in its place and rye within its area? For his God instructs and teaches him properly. There's a right time to plant. There's a right time to harvest. This is just common sense. God has so instructed it. Verse 27, for dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin. Does bill, uh, 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 but dill is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a club. Grain for bread, verse 28, is crushed. Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever because the wheel of his cart and his horses will eventually damage it. He does not thresh it any longer. In other words, 
There's just some right ways of doing things, and God has instructed that. God knows. God teaches his people. Listen, he says, verse 23, give ear. What do you think, God is wasting his divine breath? Listen to him. He's telling you right. He's telling you what is righteous. Verse 29, this comes from the Lord Almighty, the Lord of armies, the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great, who, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent and magnificent in his guidance, in his wisdom. He begins with woe in the chapter. He ends with wisdom and this appeal. Listen to God. Stop your scoffing. And if you don't, you do it to your own peril. Now, scoffers abound today, do they not? <laughs> you read the newspapers, you listen to the news, you watch interviews of politicians or people in the media. Seems like everywhere you look, you got people who just despise anything that would point to God. It doesn't take much to believe that maybe we are living in those days that Peter and Jude were talking about. The scoffing mockers. Hardly a day goes by we can't hear something that's derogatory to our cherished beliefs as Bible-believing Christians. God said in the beginning that he created the heavens and the earth. And the scoffers scoff about some natural event that erupts in the primordial soup. God said he created them male and female to go be fruitful and multiply. Yet every day we hear the scoffers, male to male, female to female, what does it matter as long as they love? How bigoted to hold that archaic view the Bible says that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through him. And every day the scoffers scoff. And they say, all roads lead to heaven. I just can't believe in a God who'd be so narrow-minded The scoffers are out in full force. But I had to ask myself this week, as I study this passage, are there not times that I am a scoffer? Are there not times that in my walk with God, I become a practical scoffer? Remember the four imperatives in verse 23? Give ear, hear my voice, listen, hear my words. As if God says, Mark, give ear, hear my voice. Hello, Mark, are you listening? 
Do you hear my words? Anytime we decide to live our lives apart from God and his word, the wisdom of God, are we not practical scoffers? Every time I think that if I just raise my voice in anger, that someone will get the point I'm trying to make? And yet, is that what God's word says? I know God's word. Do I not scoff when I act sinfully then? Every time I, I worry, I let anxiety, anxious thoughts grip me, am I not a practical scoffer when God's word says be anxious for nothing, but just let your request be made known to me and I'll give you my peace? I know that verse. I've preached it. But am I not a practical scoffer? How different would our lives be? How different would our lives be if we consistently heard God's word, listened to him, and walked the path of wisdom, followed it? How different would our marriages be if we had just listened consistently to God's wisdom? How much greater would our inner peace, would our shalom, would our sense of well-being be if we just listened to God and his word? How, how deeper, how greater would the joy in our spirits be in the midst of pain and the sorrow of life? How much greater would our joy be if we just would listen to God and his wisdom and his word to trust him? See, we have to ask ourselves, am I growing in the grace and knowledge of my Lord and Savior? Am I growing in understanding who God is, what he's accomplished for me? Am I soaking up the riches of his word? Am I listening to him? But I don't want you to miss this. Back in verse 29, don't miss this very important truth regarding the path of wisdom. See verse 29 there again? This also comes from the Lord of hosts who made his counsel wonderful. Turn those two words around. Who is he talking about? The wonderful counselor. Isaiah is going back to what he said in chapter 9, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will sit will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. For you see, the path of wisdom is not so much knowing facts, it's knowing him. It's an intimate, personal relationship with the living God. It's knowing Jesus. This is what Isaiah is focusing on through divine inspiration. God is saying, it's the Wonderful Counselor. It's a relationship with me. Let's not forget the verse I passed over in verse 16. In verse 16, Therefore thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, 
a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. And he who believes in it will not be disturbed or in haste. There's a stone in Zion, a precious cornerstone, and the apostle Peter spoke of it. We started with Peter, we end with him. Coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifice acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For this is contained in the scripture. And he quotes Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious stone, cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. He who believes in him will not be disappointed. Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God. He is the tested, precious stone. He is the everlasting rock. This is what Isaiah's message is about. So trust him. Listen to him. Learn of him. Everyone who believes in him, he says, the last little part there, will not be disturbed. The translation is really more literally, will not live, will not be in haste, will not be hurried about. And the idea of that term, that that word, is that, you know, life comes at us hard. We don't know what this week is going to hold, but I'll tell you, for maybe some of us, it's going to be a real pain in the you-know-what. Something's going to happen, and life is going to come at us hard. And all of a sudden, we can find ourselves anxious and hurried about. That's what this word is. And we're, we're looking here and out of fear and, and, and anxiety and, and we're, 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 we're talking louder and we're, we're getting upset and we're... <laughs> and Isaiah's saying here, he who believes in him is not going to be disturbed, is going to be quieted because in his presence... There's fullness of joy. And at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And if we lived our life in full understanding of who God is, what God has done for us, how he views us, Isaiah is saying there is a remarkable quieting. Listen to me, God says. Hear my voice. I'm not out to destroy you. I'm out to love you and to make your paths sweet with my presence. The path of woe, I'll take it from here, God. I'll figure this out. Or the path of wisdom. Build on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ. That's what Isaiah is ultimately saying. Pursue him whom to know, John said in chapter 17, is life eternal. And so we make a choice, do we not? Spending time with him in his word, getting to know him, being a part of a small group or, or consistent uh, time in, in, in fellowship with the saints, not once a month, but 
consistently gathering as a saints, learning His Word, taking a class, personal time in His Word, all with this heart that says, speak to me, O Lord. Speak to me. How many times do we forget, folks, that the Christian life is a relationship with the living God? Just like we're doing right now. We're talking. I'm talking. A friendship, sitting at Panera with a cup of coffee, and you're talking, and you're listening to each other. Do do we listen to God? Do we just kind of sometimes shut up with an open Bible and just say, all right, Lord, speak to me. And just be quiet, the discipline of silence before him, and let him talk to us. Because what he wants with us is a relationship. The king of kings wanting a relationship with me. Why would I not seize it and walk the path of wisdom? Let's pray. And so, Father, thank you for these ancient words that are inspired and ever today living and powerful. Thank you, Father, for um, touching our hearts and stirring us up by way of reminder this morning. And as we leave, I pray, Father, we will desire even in a greater way to commune with you, to sit at your feet and listen to you this week. I ask this in Christ's name. Amen.